you have your Bibles, our text today is going to be on page 895 of our Pew Bible. It's Luke chapter 22. Before I read it, I would like to just kind of give you a little a, a, kind of a process that God's been working me through. And, and really the capstone of it was this past week, uh, I received a call. We're getting more of these kinds of calls, which is a good thing. But it was a family that used to live in our area. Now they live outside of the region. Uh, unfortunately, her mom had passed away and they were planning a graveside service. And she called asking if I could do the service. She had actually attended the funeral of, of um, here at Hope Chapel uh, back in the latter part of 2012. And and, um, you know, and I was unable to do the day that they had planned for this. And so we were trying to explore just maybe how, who else they knew in the region. And she told me that when we lived here, we went to this particular church, but that church, they went there for quite a while. And that church kind of run into some internal struggles. And, and it was a good Bible teaching church, one that, that held up who Christ is, preached Christ as the son of God. And then they moved from there to the Unitarian church and felt at home. And, and they didn't know the ministers at either one of those churches anymore. And so I gave her a couple of names. When I got off the phone, my, I got to tell you, my spirit was really just kind of heavy. How is it that an individual can sit under the clear biblical teaching and yet somehow never get the idea that the content of the truth matters. It's not just a feeling. It's not just about going to church and, and having some kind of warm feeling towards some kind of an idea of God, but that it's actually rooted in real life, actual, historical, God-designed events that occurred in Scripture. And, and my heart was brought I'm thinking, I wonder how many, if there's any people like that at Hope Chapel, who, who routinely come, find the messages uplifting, yet somehow or another never crisscross the idea that the content of our faith, as well as the feeling of having faith, actually matters. And with that, I'm going to share with you a different kind of message this morning than we, we generally do. And I think it's just a wonderful opportunity for us to go through this journey together as we work through the Easter season, through Holy Week, beginning today and ending next Sunday. You know, because often, and this is by design, our messages start with a clear and direct connection to a perceived need in the congregation. When you look at our sermon titles, generally they're designed to, to communicate to you before you listen to a single word why this message matters to me. 40 Days of Love, speaking about the way that improving our love life act, in relationship to God changes everything about our lives. It's clearly evident the value to our everyday lives of the messages. But this one is, is a little different because it drives us back to the content. And, and the imagery that I want to use for you for this week and next week is that of the cup. This has been a long conspiracy that God's been kind of using in me. I mean, be easy to use the cross or the empty tomb or the ripped veil or the moved rock. And we've used a lot of those imageries in the past. But, you know, back in, this, in June of 2012, Christina and I had the privilege of going to Israel. And as a part of that, we went through two different sites that were understood to be traditional sites of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. One of those is now encapsulated inside of a church building. It's very ornate with all kinds of icons and et cetera around. The other is, 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 a, is a quiet garden, and there's a hill that has three holes in it that make it look like a face. And then just across the way, just a, a, a few, literally just a, a, you know, 20 yards or so, is, is an empty tomb. So we visited that site, had a chance to be quiet and reflective there, to enter into what is believed to have been the tomb of Jesus. And then when we came out, we took communion together. And they gave us commemorative little cups 
by which we took communion that day. And and I, as I sat there waiting for kind of everybody to finish the tour, for us to get ready, and and sitting in the quietness of the shade, the coolness of the shade, I I had a fresh appreciation for just how how the symbol of the cup kind of pulls Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter all together. And we've been preparing to take this Passover meal together on Friday night. And again, the imagery of the cup is is central in our experience as we take it together on Friday night. There are going to be four different cups that we're going to drink, remembering various events that were part of God's original salvation of his people in the book of Genesis. But I think then I begin to say, well, boy, you know what? The symbol of the cup is very powerful in the Holy Week story. You know, it, it, it starts with James and John coming to Jesus and saying, you know what? We want to have the right and left-hand chairs when you come into your power. And Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And they answered, yes, we are. And he says, well, you will indeed drink the cup that I will drink. And then he goes and he has the Lord's Supper experience, celebrates Passover, takes the four cups, and then he offers up a new one, which we'll talk about next week. Then they depart from there and he goes to a quiet garden and he prays. And he prays not once, prays not twice, but he prays three times that this cup will pass from me. And then when the guards and those show up to actually arrest him because Judas has already departed, Peter gets all excited. He pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of those who's come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Peter, what, what are you doing? Must I not drink the cup that God has given to me? And, and you see this imagery of the cup kind of coming up over and over again. And, 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 and I, I'm pretty dense, okay? So it takes a lot. So after all of this, a light bulb kind of goes on and says, boy, maybe God's got a message for us about the cup. Now, obviously, you read the title and you say the cup of Easter. Well, what does that mean, you know? Has it got Coke in it, Rwandan coffee? What does it got in the cup? You know, that kind of idea. You know, but there's a great message that we need to understand and appreciate because it's the foundation. Without the things that are represented in the cup, both the cup that Jesus drank and the cup that Jesus offers to us, there is no Christian faith. There is no witness to a changed life through faith in Jesus Christ like we witnessed a few minutes ago. So I want us to take some time to look at this cup. And I'm going to do a couple of artificial things with it, meaning that, you know, in order for us to kind of be able to break it down into pieces that we can get our hands on, I'm going to impose some structure on some things that aren't necessarily intended to be there. But one of those is is uh, we're going to kind of divide up the cup between the cup that Jesus drank and then the cup that Jesus offers to us. And we'll look at the cup that Jesus offers to us next week because it's embedded in the message of the resurrected Christ. But today we're going to look at this cup that he drank. And, and, and I'm going to p- kind of break it down between the composition Position of the cup, what is it actually made of, and then the contents of the cup, what's in it. And again, those are kind of artificial things, but they're designed again for us to be able to appreciate what it is, what is the significance of this. Now, the imagery of a cup is very common in the scriptures. Psalm 23, right? My cup overflows. In fact, scholars tell us that there are 32 different things that the cup represents in the scriptures. The cup of blessing, the cup of salvation, the cup of joy, the cup of peace. The, the list just kind of goes on and on. And it's always used figuratively to stand for what God has given to us or has given for somebody to experience. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles open, Luke chapter 22. In context, Jesus has gone through the triumphal entry. Here's, here's a guy who's full of courage. He's willing to ride literally into the hornet's nest and make the loudest, most public, clearest declaration that he is the son of God, that he knows is going to tick off the spiritual leaders who are going to be trying to crush him. And he does so with tremendous courage. He goes throughout that week. He celebrates the Lord's Supper 
They depart from the upper room. Judas has already left, and they come to the garden. And this person who is a tower of strength and courage is brought to his knees by the idea of his cup. And we read, beginning with the 39th verse, He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he began to pray. Father, he said, if you are willing... Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from the prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. He says, why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Now, I know some of you are filling in the outlines as we go. So let me point out to you, we're not going to fill in the main blank of this point until we get done with the first, the three points that are below it. Because I think it's, as you think about this, that the, the, we need to kind of look at the DNA of the composition of the cups before we can really understand what, what the, what, what the, what the cup is comprised of. And again, I'm, I think the imagery will kind of come together as we go forward. What, what is this cup that Jesus has to drink from? One element of that is clearly temptation. This is the final temptation of Christ. After this, it's all downhill for him. His ministry started with a time of temptation. It ends with a time of temptation. I've given you a reference here to, to um, Matthew chapter 16. Some of you are familiar with that. This is a time when Jesus, as he's heading into Jerusalem with his disciples, he's given them the plainest, clearest teaching he's done up to this point in time, saying, listen, the plan that God has for me, the way that I become the Savior of the world, the way that I bring the kingdom of God, is I go into Jerusalem and I die. And Peter takes him aside and says, Lolo, Lolo, you've got to stop talking that way. You're going to demoralize the troops. It's not going to happen that way. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because it's in that idea that Jesus is being tempted to do the work of God in some way that's not consistent with the will of God. And he's being tempted. And so he's got temptation on the mind. So he says to his, his disciples, you know, you, you guys need to pray so you don't fall into temptation. It, it's, it's his experience. As he's praying that night in the garden, he's wrestling with the temptation to somehow move forward without being obedient to the will of God. There's, there's also a sense that there's an element of submission. You notice as he's praying in verse 42, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. But you know what? Not my will. Your will be done. There is a sense of submission that's going on. You know, at the heart and soul of this is that in his humanity, not in his divinity, but in his humanity, Jesus, Jesus really wanted this to happen some other way. You know, we wouldn't want him to be any different than that. If, if Jesus Christ was the kind of guy who could sign up to get the snot beaten out of him, beaten and then tortured on a cross and dying, and he could do so gleefully, this is a guy who wouldn't be mentally stable. But Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And so he's struggling with, am I going to really submit to God's will for me? And, you know, and, and this is a, this is a struggle that you and I deal with every single day. You know, it is, it is at the core. Am I going to do life my way or am I going to do life God's way? And, and that's why Jesus said, you know what? If you're going to come after me, if you're going to walk the life of faith with me, you're going to deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. So he's struggling with submission. And as a part of that, he's also struggling with the whole issue of servanthood. You know, is he going to serve? You know, he knew that he had come into the world to serve others, to give his life as a ransom for many. But now he's here. He's at the final moment and he's wondering, is that a cup I really want to drink? I mean, this goes really back to his dialogue with James and John when he says to them, you know, you have to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And they say, we're willing. And we often look at that and we think, well, he, what he's really referring to there is martyrdom, but, he, but he's really not because the apostle John wasn't martyred. He had some difficulties in his journey, but he wasn't martyred. What, what he's really saying there is that, are you able to drink 
the cup of the life of servanthood the way that I have to drink this. I've come that my life might be a ransom for many, to give it away to other people, to, to embody for everybody that the way up in the kingdom is actually down. And he's struggling with all of this. And, and when you put all of this together, the temptation, the submission, the service, what you really get is that the cup that Jesus was struggling to drink from that night was a cup of sacrifice. Was he willing to sacrifice himself in our place? But if you will, you could envision him kind of looking into the cup. And as he looks at the contents of it, what would you see? And, and the thing that just leaps out to me is that it, it's a cup of suffering. Because it's a cup of sacrifice, it's filled with suffering. Some of that's physical. He's going to be brutally beaten, savagely beaten. You know, John chapter 19 tells us that Pilate gave Jesus over to be scourged. You know, Pilate is kind of in the middle. He wants to get off the hook. And so he has in his mind, you know what? If we give Jesus the most savage beating that we legally can and bring him out in his bruised, pathetic state, that the people will have some sense of compassion for him. And they'll say, just let him go. Just let him go. Doesn't work that way. But in the meantime, Jesus takes the most savage beating that the law would allow them to administer. Some of you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You know what that looks like. And and it's, it's an incredible thing. Jesus was facing this incredible, brutal, savage beating. So some of that suffering was physical. But, but some of it was spiritual. Some of it was, was the whole issue of sin. You know, one of the things I cannot get my mind around, and, and maybe you're, you can deal with it better than I can, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the 21st verse, the Apostle Paul tells us that he took him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, he literally made him sin. It, this may not be correct theologically, but the imagery is that Jesus literally came to personify, to incarnate all the sin that had ever happened in the history of the world. Now, try to get your mind around that. Here's a guy who's holy. He's existed forever. He's The thing that he abhors the most is sin, is evil. Anything that has done that, anything that's not of holiness, he just abhors it. The thing that scares him to death, et cetera, it's, you know, it's fear factor, or, you know, lying in snakes or, or, you know, being surrounded by rats on steroids, time three. It's just awful. Just, just think about it. Here's Jesus, right? Never ever for, for eternity tasted a sin. And in a moment, and we just have to look through our own century here at the latter part, the 20th and 21st century, he's going to taste all of the guilt and all of the ugliness of the Holocaust in one moment. He's going to feel the death of every single one of the men, women, and child who died in the Rwandan genocide, all 800,000 of them. He's going to feel the fear and the anger and the hurt and the loss of just even some of the, the, the children and teachers who lost their lives in Newtown, Connecticut. He's going to taste all that, and he's literally going to become that for you and I. It's a cup of suffering. And you could just run the list on out. But it also has a relational element. Because as we read in, in later in, in, the, in uh, Matthew's chapter, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for the very first time in all of eternity, the Father and Son who have always enjoyed perfect unity are going to be separated. And he's going to feel the relational pain of separation. You know, many of us know people who have lost a spouse after being married for 40 or 50 or 60 years. And we look at their lives and we see in some ways how, how incomplete they seem to feel in those moments. Imagine what it would be like to be 
to be intimately connected to the Father for all of eternity. And all of a sudden, he not only has to turn his back on you, but he's going to take all the wrath, all the anger, all the disgust that he's had for all of these centuries and pour it out on you. They, they couldn't have gotten further apart. And Jesus hangs there on the cross in this agony, this suffering of being separated from the Father. You see, the, the cup is it's full of sacrifice and it's full of suffering. And Jesus kneels in the garden and he says, you know, Father, this is the cup you've given me to drink. And there's only one reason why I drink it. It's because like you, I don't want any to perish. I don't want a single one to perish. And so Jesus rises from his knees that night. The temptation is over. The sacrifice is prepared. The suffering is ready to be endured. And he walks out of that garden that night in the hands of his arrestor. And he goes to his trial and to his death for us. He drank the cup for us. You know, ultimately, it's not sin. It's not us. It's not. It was God who put him on the cross. It was God who handed him the cup to drink. And our faith is built on the fact that Jesus drank the cup. It's not just an idea. It's not just a concept of love. It's not just a, the nice, you know, kind of philosophical idea of forgiveness and et cetera. It is built on the reality that God stepped into human life and drank figurative cup of sacrifice and of suffering. And he did so that he could offer us the cup of covenant that we're going to look at next week. It's what Easter is all about. But in the cup, we have the strong reminder of not only what God has done for us, but also what we must do every single day. We've got to deal with temptation every single day. I wish I could tell you that I had a day that goes by in my life where I wasn't tempted. Tempted every single day to do life my way instead of God's way. Every single, every single day I struggle with the issue of submission. Am I going to write the check I should write to the Lord or do I write the check that I would prefer to write to the Lord? Am I going to, every time we, we we announce something from the pulpit about an opportunity for you to serve. You have an issue of, are you going to submit and are you going to serve? Every time we're in a difficult situation and we want to strike back, but we hear God saying, turn the other cheek, we struggle with this idea of the temptation and submission and service and the list just could go on and on. It is rooted in these issues, in the cup, what Jesus dealt with in the garden. Those are the issues that we have to deal with every single day. When I was in Rwanda just a few weeks ago, one of the things that they were able to do this year they'd never been able to do before because of some equipment that uh, Frank Reynolds had been able to get together, they were able to show the passion of the Christ to some of these churches that we were working in. And there was a consistent response in every single church. They would gather together, the church where we were teaching at underneath the tent, they were, they were, the place was full, 350, 400 people. They showed the passion of the Christ, and as the, the words came up in English, because it's all in Hebrew, you know, Aramaic, Tofil, our, our, our host, is, is interpreting into Kenny Rwandan. And they're going through the movie, and, and the people are just, they're just weeping. We showed the movie here on a Good Friday a couple years ago, and, and there were literally people who were not physically able to get up out of their seats and leave. After. And, and as we processed that experience with the pastors the next time we were together to them, we said, what, what do you think? And here's what they said across the board. Said, after seeing that movie, after seeing what Jesus went through, how could I ever sin again? You know, when, when, when you and I confront what the cup is really all about, the sacrifice and the suffering that goes with it, it calls us to surrender. It calls us to complete surrender. And, and that's not something about making our lives better, making us feel good, or about giving us hope for tomorrow. It's about surrendering to the specific, worked out, completed plan of God through Jesus Christ. That is the heart and soul of what we call holy. So the question I have, are you, have you ever surrendered to Christ? And are you fully surrendered to him today? It's a question I ask myself. It's a question that God asks of all of us.
Let's pray together. God, we find great peace in the fact that our salvation isn't built on ideas, not built on myths, not built on fairy tales or human intuition or ingenuity. God, we take great comfort and assurance today that our faith is built upon what you've done. God, we are overwhelmed and blessed by the fact that Jesus would drink this cup of sacrifice full of suffering for us. God, you see in the places that we don't even see to in our own lives. There's not a single one of us here today who's hiding anything. You know exactly where we're surrendered and you know exactly where we're not. God, use powerful imagery of the cup and all that it represents to us about what Christ did, why he did it, producing us a life that's fully served by faith in Christ as our redeemer and by submission to Christ as our Lord. And we give you glory that you did this for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.